When we share our stories with one another, we inspire each other. We help each other to grow. We also help one another to feel less alone. I'm Amanda Solar. I'm the host of Soulful Connections, and I'm the founder of SoulfulLiving.com. Join me and let's connect. Connection. Well, I am here with Roseanne. For my dedicated listeners, they know that she's my best friend, Roseanne. And Roseanne and I are, are going to, we are going to talk about why we're, why I'm doing this podcast, Softball Connections. I thought she could help me figure it out. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. And I figured Roseanne can help. By the way, as I say this, we're on Zoom. I think Roseanne is frozen because she is looking at me <laughs> with an unchanging but interested expression. But I think she just came back. In any case, um, Roseanne, first of all, welcome and thanks for coming back on to Soulful Connections. Well, it's always fun to talk to you. <laughs> That's for sure. So I have to say from the early days when during the pandemic I thought it was a perfect time because I had a minute to work on things that I'd always wanted to do and I just didn't know what they were I thought you know I, I kind of wanted to do a book because I had been in this intense situation with one of my daughters uh, in the hospital, she was in the hospital in critical care for many months. And I always thought once we kind of shook the dust off of that situation and I looked at the lessons, I thought, you know, I, I really want to share some of this, some of what I've learned. Go ahead, say I sometimes, it. I sometimes think we should just talk about that. That was you such know, a yeah. amazing, um, well, such a difficult event in your life that yeah. really changed your life. And I sometimes think we should really, we should talk about just that alone. Yeah. Okay. Maybe start there. Maybe we can talk about mm -hmm. it because I think that kind of explains why, why did I start Soulful Living? Yeah. Why did I start this connection? So basically my daughter, my middle daughter, Clara was born by all appearances, healthy and she always had some weird um, things, like she couldn't be on her tummy. And there were just certain things that didn't feel right. And I would say things to the pediatrician and the pediatrician would just say, you know what? All kids are different because I was kind of comparing her to my other firstborn daughter. And I just thought I was crazy. Honestly, I just thought I was crazy. Um, like I would have these weird thoughts that I hesitate to say, but I'll just, you know, I was reading a book about sisters to my one daughter and I was thinking, what if her sister dies? What if she dies? And 
that felt, I, I would say, why am I thinking that? You know, I would have these weird thoughts. Um, and finally, she got a horrible cold, RSV, but we didn't know it was RSV. We just knew it was a bad cold and it felt very ominous. It felt scary. And I took her to a different pediatrician because my pediatrician was away and I was crying. I thought something terrible was happening. I felt a terrible sense of foreboding and he just diminished my concerns. He said, are you a first time mother? And I said, no. And I said, please, can you give her some Tylenol? You know, her fever was so high. And he said, no, we don't give that out here. And just go get her cough medicine and she'll be fine. She was seven months. And then I took her home and she was breathing in a way that I cannot even explain. Yeah. And can I just say that you called me yes. during that event? Yes. And I remember vividly that conversation. And my response to you was, oh my God, is that Clara breathing in the background? And you said, yes. And I said, Amanda, that is not right. Like that is so alarming. That's so like, I, I have three kids too. Like I've never heard anything like that. That was and the, the weird thing is, thing. and I called you, you were living, I think in Michigan at the time, mm -hmm. right? I was. Mm -hmm. And why it's here. It's like 11 o'clock at night. My husband he worked overnights. So he was working. I had my one little girl asleep and then I was just holding Clara and doing everything like steam and everything that you do that they tell you to do. But I was in complete terror. Every cell in my body felt terrified and I didn't know what to do. And so of course, what do you do? You call your friend in Michigan <laughs> yeah. and the weird thing is I thought, you know what? She's probably sleeping. Yeah, I never answer my phone late at night. Never, except right? that night for whatever reason. I think Jeff and I were coming home from somewhere. So we were out kind of late. And yes. yeah, it was just amazing that I got that call. Yeah. Really. And you said, take her to the emergency room. Yeah. And what happened was as soon as my husband came home, I took her so that he would be home with my other daughter. And then it all began. And, you know, I won't go through all of that because it's just long and, you know, nobody really wants to hear it, but I will say at the end of everything, um, we ended up in, well, I will actually say something because I did learn a lesson. We ended up in shop. They kind of were trying to fix it. We were on the general floor. Um, I was trying to believe what they were telling me, which was like, yeah, this is really bad, but you'll be fine. She'll be fine. Ultimately, after a few days, um, which was really, it was a horrible time because I, I really felt, I can't express it enough. I felt complete abject terror, but I was surrounded by professionals who were telling me that there was no need to feel terrified. So I went home and it was Super Bowl Sunday. And I remember that because I thought it's still not good. I want to believe them, but it's not good. So at this point, I called another friend, Lorraine, because she worked in emergency. And I was like, do I bring her in again, Lorraine? She hasn't been drinking. This is what's happening. 
And my friend said, yeah, but go to a CHOP hospital. You need to go. But And she directed me to a different hospital, which was Grandview. It was in this area, but not the one I would normally go to. And at that hospital, one thing really struck me, and it was this. The emergency care doctor looked at me and she said, okay, we're sending you to intensive care because your daughter has been struggling to breathe for weeks. She is going to stop breathing. And when she stops, I want her in intensive care. So of course I didn't, I, I didn't want that to be true. And I was you know, praying and just hoping that she was wrong. But I felt like she was telling me the truth. You know that thing, Roseanne, where somebody tells you something and it doesn't matter if you want it to be true or not, there is this kind of visceral knowing that it's true. Sure. And especially as mothers, we need to really pay attention to that because yeah. even when they're older, because I can attest to this side of it and you just think this isn't right. This doesn't look right. This doesn't sound right. Even though there's no true proof and professionals are saying, oh, it's all right. Don't worry. And you just know, you just feel it. You don't want to, yeah. like you said. So you sort of listen to everybody else because you don't really want it to be true what you're really thinking. So yes. as mothers, we have to listen to that because we're we almost do. always right. Almost you know, always right. When I left, just at the end of this, I was thinking back on lessons that I learned. And that was a, and the reason I wanted to share that story as we're talking is because I think that's a really important lesson for all of us, no matter who you are, when you hear truth, you know it. That's right. And when you know it, don't argue with yourself, you know, accept that there is a sense of knowing with certain things and trust yourself. You yeah, know? I was just going to say that. You got to trust it. You really you got to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately that did happen. You know, we ended up, we were in intensive care and she did stop breathing and she was intubated and it was a really um, long, you know, we were in intensive care for about a half of a year because what they uncovered was that my daughter was very creatively constructed internally. And she ultimately ended up needing open heart surgery. And she had, um, she had something called long stem tracheostenosis with complete rings, which just means this. She had an airway the size of a coffee straw and it had rings all around it. So we were told she couldn't survive. Um, we were told, you know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't live. Um, and thus began this, you know, really, really long time. And I have to say another great lesson was friendship because I will never forget Roseanne. Um, the elevator door opened one day <laughs> And I just remember you stepped out and I remember like you're, you had these furry boots <laughs> because I was, I was in such, you know, it was such a traumatic experience and Victor and I were there every single 
day. Basically, I lived there. He brought my other daughter there after preschool every day so the family could be together. And then on the eighth day, he usually slept over and then I would be home with my other poor little, you know, four-year-old. But you stepped out and had nowhere to go but my room with, or Clara's room, really, essentially. And we just sat there, you know, together. I didn't have a great deal of hospitality to offer you. (laughs) Well, that was the whole point of just to come and just to be there. Cause I know what it's like to have a kid in the hospital and have other children at home. And you're so pulled between them. It's like Mm -hmm. when you're home, you're, you're dying to get home to be with your other child. And then as soon as you get home, you're dying to get back to the hospital to be with the one that's sick. And there's just this terrible feeling. And I remember sometimes thinking, I wish there was somebody like I trusted that I could just leave here, you know, with my daughter so I can run home and even just like get something, you know? And yeah. I remember thinking, I hope that I can be that for you. Just that friend where you, I can step into your shoes just for a little bit of time. So you can become two people because that's how you feel like you need to be in that yeah. situation. Right. Really I mean, it was so interesting having my daughter there every day and people, you know, I wondered what are they judging the fact that I have this other four-year-old here in my room and I'm walking around the hospital, but I was there. So she had to be there because it wasn't like a local hospital, you know, it was a far hospital. So she basically lived there too, but then Victor would take her home and, and you're right. It was just terrible. You know, it was, I wasn't putting her to bed, which I had normally done, but another lesson is really look at your tribe, really look at your people who are in your life because you um, were just somebody who would cry with me. Sometimes that's all we could do if there was something horrible that I was listening to, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some dire prognosis, which there were many, and um, Mm -hmm. there were many um, agonizing moments, you know, with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember that one in particular, where it was, I think the heart surgeon who came in to discuss this heart problem and the surgery that needed to take place. And, you know, they don't sugarcoat it. He laid it all out that day. And when he left, I mean, I I remember during it actually going into the bathroom, just closing the door and just taking a minute and sort of praying. And I started to break down and I thought, okay, well, this is not why I'm here. Like I'm here to help you. And if I'm losing it, like, you know, I just want to be strong for you somehow. And I remember walking out of the room and saying to you after it was all over, like you looked at me and I wanted to say, it's going to be fine, Amanda, don't worry. And I remember all I could say was, oh my God, this is awful. <laughs> and and that was the perfect thing right to out. say. Oh my because, gosh. Because I remember he came in, Victor, my husband had left. So he had a lot of things he had to tell me. Everything he told me, I had a list of questions, a little pad and big, and I would ask him a question. His answer was, horrible. Like it was. I can only just tell you it was the worst thing you would ever want to hear horrible. somebody say about your kid. And then I would just go, all right. And I would ask the next question and then it would be horrible. And the worst question, the question I always ask people, because my daughter, Clara, she came out of the womb wanting to be held. I had to hold her 24 seven, couldn't put her down. 
So when she was intubated with a critical airway, no less, her head was tilted, there were pillows, she had all kinds of tubes, wires, and I wasn't allowed to hold her, of course. And that was a very painful thing. And I, I knew it was painful for her. You know, I 100% knew that she was in terror. And it's why I didn't leave her alone in the room. My husband didn't leave her alone. We always had somebody who loved her with her. It wasn't, a, even though it was critical care, we had a nurse there all of the time. We felt that we needed to also have somebody who loved her, you know, there. But anyway, the last question, my hardest question was, when can I, you know, can I hold her? And, you know, it was always, no, you, you can't. And we don't know when you can. So that was always the question that was very debilitating for me because it was, I had learned not to look too much in the future. I thought, you know what? She just has to live five minutes from now. She just has to live, you know, and I had learned to not say, okay, let's, you know, let's worry about two weeks from now because they weren't giving me that, but I thought I can keep her alive tonight, you know, and that's how it was. So I turned to you and I looked at you and you were sitting at the little hospital desk and tears were streaming down your face. And you said, well, that was just horrible. That was just awful. And it was, was perfect. awful. <laughs> and it was the perfect thing for me to hear though, because if you had said, Amanda, you know, that's all right. That would have felt horrible that you weren't recognizing the enormity of it. I mean, and that's, you sat in that horror with me and that is what I needed. And I, I mean, I have this great tribe. I have, you know, Lorraine and Linda, who are my two childhood friends as well, who I, I sometimes was sitting in the hallway and I would just alternate because I would have tears streaming down my face. And I thought, it looks less pathetic if you're on the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes I would want to ho- be on the phone. So I would call one of you guys, but I really had nothing to say. And, and even my mother and father and sister and brother, I have this really close group. And I just think, again, that's another lesson I took away. You know, if there's somebody in your, in your group or in your tribe or in your circle that is causing you harm in some way get away yeah but if they're you know but people like you and like your friends nurture that take care of it you know call your friends text your yes and ask your friends for help is the thing too because you know you I know you felt like you couldn't ask me for help I was what 12 hours away by car in Michigan and you know, after I hung up the phone with you and, you know, got the gist of it, I said to Jeff, um, I'm going to have to go there. Like, I just feel like I'm dying here, not being there. Um, everything in our life at that moment was stable. Nothing was really happening. There's nothing he couldn't handle. And I just felt like there was no other place I wanted to be except with you during that period of time. No, no other place. You know, the other thing that you did was you would, you would make Victor and me tea. Well, you know, I think tea's, a cup of tea solves everything, you know? So, you know <laughs> and Victor still work, says, you know, it. <laughs> yes, he, as a matter of fact, he always says, don't put, don't put any milk or cream in my tea. And he said, the only person that can do that is Roseanne. <laughs> There's something so about the way. And that was just, and 
also, I remember going home, leaving Victor there one day and you were like, okay, we've got to do something about your hair. Cause I had been living in this sweatshirt and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it was, it was pretty, I think I lived in the same sweatshirt for uh, Clara actually has that same sweatshirt now, but anyway, we went home and he, do you remember Roseanne? We, we went to my home and one of my neighbors who was from Iran. So he didn't I do remember this. Remember this? He didn't yes. speak tons and tons of English, but he spoke English. And he looked at me and he said, where have you been? And I told him a little bit of what happened. And he looked at me and he turned around and he started slamming his hands against the car. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And you it and I, great. well, my first instinct was, I was shocked. I was stunned that he was right. <laughs> slamming himself against his car. And then we just kind of mumbled something, went in, looked at each other in shock. And then we both said, well, that seemed to be like the perfect reaction. It was appropriate. <laughs> it really was appropriate. Oh my gosh. Yeah, nobody was. else did that. And then he came to the door with flowers and, but you, you know, the other thing Roseanne, so that was that time. And oh, and even like there were things, there were doctors who thought I was wrong. You know, I believed something. And again, it's it's such a long, drawn out story that I don't want to get too in the weeds with it, but I had a set of beliefs, strong beliefs of how I could keep Clara alive. And the doctors didn't always agree. You know, we didn't always agree. And there was a couple of doctors who thought I should just go home and let them do yeah. what they needed. One to do. of them, as a matter of fact, told me that while I was there to yes. see if I had any influence to get you home. And I remember yes. saying to that doctor, yeah, you don't know who you're dealing with. There no. is no way that you are going to convince her to do anything. I've known this woman since I was five years old. And I'm here <laughs> to tell you, if she doesn't want to do it, she isn't going to do it. <laughs> yeah. There's and nothing you, know, that you can doctor, say. Yeah. He, um, that doctor one was time difficult. Like he was just a strange man. He was tough because one time he said to me in one particular harrowing situation, and there were a lot, he said, we're going to have to do this, this surgery. And I had, all you have to do is, you know, every day you're just staring at your child, studying, reading, staring, connecting with doctors and and I had read about the surgery they wanted to do. It had a hundred percent mortality. It didn't yeah. have 99% mortality. It had a hundred percent mortality. So I said, no, can't do it. And he said, well, I said, it has a hundred percent mortality. I'm not doing that. And he said, well, she's going to die anyway. I know. You know he was, a, he was hard to deal with. He, he just didn't have a bedside with. manner, but I think he did later on. It got better with him. Did I it not? think what happened was he thought I didn't get it. I mean, okay. there were a lot of people who thought I didn't get it. He thought his wife actually was an intensive care doctor. And she sat with me early on and she said, you know, we're fond of your daughter and we want her to live. We really hope she does. And she started crying mm. and I looked at her. And I thought, yeah, you're off the team. You're done. We're done with you. I'm happy that you're so compassionate, but you don't believe my daughter's going to live. I could feel yeah. it. And I thought, I don't want anybody who doesn't believe my daughter's going to live. 
Mm-hmm. So they just had a really, they thought she's, you know, she's going, she's going to die. And this woman doesn't understand it. And I always thought, even when they were surrounding me, trying to convince me of something, I thought, okay, they definitely have, you know, a lot more education than this, you know, two years of college, which, you know, I, I studied going to parties essentially in my two right. years of college. <laughs> That's a good time. So, yeah. You got, <laughs> you got me on the education, but you don't know her. I know her. And also I don't have it in, I don't have the ability to believe the worst. I don't have it. So yeah, he was tough. And I do remember you seeing some interaction and I don't, and you told me later, I didn't know you were watching. Mm-hmm. You came in and were watching because he was always, it was kind of humiliating because by the way, the other thing that oh, they I was wanted- so mad about it. I mean, it distressed me more than I can even tell you that day that I heard that conversation. And that was another day that I came in and I just went into the bathroom right away and was just like, so angry. I didn't, didn't even know how I was going to be able to talk to you yeah. or how I wanted to help, but I had yeah. no idea what to say. Yeah. It was awful. Well, you know, what I did is I put the typical feelings you would have on a shelf because I, I couldn't have that feeling. And I thought I'm going to let them think I'm, they, they believe I'm either stupid crazy or both. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, but the one thing that he didn't want, you had also come back after her surgery. She had open heart surgery as part of all of this craziness. And you came back. And the other thing that they wanted to do was just have her go through withdrawal and get off these drugs. She was on a ton of drugs, medicines, because, you know, you can't have that kind of intubation and experience without it. So one day, you know, I'm watching her this and she is just in agony and she's crying. And I said, no, mm -mm." and I worked out a drug schedule (laughs) for her. And I said, this is how we are weaning her. You are not taking her off. She's not going through withdrawal. This little baby. She doesn't need to suffer like that. No, and she can't breathe. She has a coffee Mm -hmm. straw for her airway. So So every time she cries, it's not what we want to have happen. yeah, it's she's true. she's gonna die mm-hmm. from withdrawal. I will deal with everything else, but this is and I had a whole little chart, and of course, this doctor <laughs> did right. not like my two Didn't years like of party education, <laughs> right. giving him this chart. Oh. But the great news for me was that I had a couple of doctors in my corner, and the head of critical care, he was collaborative and he was brilliant and crazy and interesting and he supported me and the heart surgeon he was supported me gosh I think I fell in love with him in like one day he was amazing even my brother fell in love with him (laughs) yes I mean he was a I don't don't know if he's still a surgeon but he is amazing I think he runs a hospital in Utah because I saw him a little bit in case especially in the early days because I thought we might need him yeah Um, He was like the best doctor I'd ever been in front of. He was, I mean, like I said, he never sugarcoated it. He told you the truth. And, but he did it so with such compassion and caring and hope. He did it with hope. Like he he never said, oh, she's going to die from the surgery. There was nothing, you know, he was just so completely hopeful and confident. 
that's yes. who, oh, he that's was who you want. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it's when as we're talking about this, Roseanne, I almost think I could take a little piece of what happened and talk about that because there were so many different things. And sure. I, I don't want to take up the whole time with it, but when I think about, you know, different things, you know, one certain a time I thought that one other surgeon had to be in the room at the same time and it didn't work out. And it's, there's a long story about it, but it, it was such a powerful lesson. And essentially, um, you know, we, we went home from this whole experience with, you know, oxygen and we were on an every two hour medicine schedule. We had physical and occupational therapists. Um, and we had still a bad, uh, prognosis. They said, she's going to need that surgery, the surgery with a hundred percent mortality, right. You will be back Mm -hmm. and, and you'll be back soon. And also, by the way, she can't get a cold. If she gets a cold, she will die. So those were the things I was left with. My husband and I were left with, my family and I were left with, because I have to say, even my daughter who was in kindergarten, one of her friends said, you know, Gracie can't drink out of the water fountain because she might get her sister sick, you know? So it was very um, impactful. But when we got home, um, I remember one day, it wasn't when we got home, it was, we were living this crazy life and I was trying to get back to normal. So I was working, trying to do yoga. I was on this every two hour um, schedule. So we didn't really sleep very much. I think I killed a lot of brain cells back then. If I can't remember anything, I always blame it on that. Yeah. But I do remember Roseanne, I was at the top of the steps one day and I was thinking, you know, everybody else can go to McDonald's, (laughs) which is so weird. Like, why do I want to go to McDonald's? But I was thinking, and they can bring their kids to McDonald's and they don't have to worry that their kid is going to get a cold and die. And I was feeling like, sorry for myself and my kids. And as I took the next step, I remember thinking, wait a second, we are all in the same boat. We are all vulnerable. Life is ephemeral. All any of us have is this moment. I just have been shown it in a visceral way. Yes. But we're all, you know, we're all in the same boat. Anything could happen. So you do have to just like love that moment and celebrate that moment. Yeah. And so all of these things and Roseanne, you know, we have to talk sometime too, because you have many stories of your own as it relates to drama and being a mother and being a mother of us, you know, in a crisis situation. Right, right. And, you know, my daughter, Hope, too, spent a lot of time in the hospital in and out. You know, I don't think only one time, maybe two nights did I ever feel it was critical, where I actually thought we might not be taking her home. But that certainly wasn't, you know, months and months and months like your situation. But But I know how it feels. Yes, I do. I know how it feels. And, And, you know, even one hour of that is... Yeah. Life, life altering. It is. I know the fear of it and just the, the desperation and how you would just do anything. You just feel like you would just do anything, but there's nothing to be, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do. It's the worst feeling ever, you know, and 
And it was so great being in the hospital that time with you because we were holding Clara. That was the point where they let you hold her. And yes. God bless you, Amanda, because the minute they let you hold her, she was never put down. <laughs> she was never put down. You held her the whole time. And if you weren't holding her, I was holding her. And if I wasn't holding her, Victor was holding her or your sister was holding her. Somebody was yeah. holding her. Like and you know what's funny about that? Ever put down. And, and there's something about, so my daughter had open heart surgery, then she had, or she had heart surgery. And then she, um, she, we didn't want to intubate her because she had this tiny airway. They had already shaved the sides accidentally of her airway off. So she had scar tissue and it, it was just a mess. And they were worried that if they intubated her, you know, it was really hard to get her um, extubated. Right. Or no, she was intubated, but they, I know what happened. I think they took her, they extubated her and she freaked. Clara was also a very strong-minded baby. So she would freak out at every turn. And it was that strength that, you know, I think helped her to live, but it was a strength that they were panicked because they couldn't get her to breathe because she was just freaking out and she wouldn't let them give her oxygen and this one nurse, Nurse Q, she had a really long name. So everybody called her Q. She said, let's let mom hold her. See yeah. what that does. She was freaking out. And then I held her and she stopped crying. Mm -hmm. She was completely calm. And it was the first time I had held her in, in so long. And I remember she stopped crying and I knew that she was going to live because I could feel life. She was solid. And I could almost mm -hmm. feel like the blood pumping in her veins. I could almost feel her lungs. Like it was so, I, I can never express the feeling of that moment holding her. Yeah, I bet. And you know, because I had to hold an oxygen thing. It was a tube because she wouldn't wear a mask. Up right, to her nose right and mouth. Her nose the whole time. And when, and when I would start to fall asleep, because you know you get to one in the morning, mm -hmm. you would say go sleep, and you would sit there for hours and hold her and hold the oxygen. Yeah, on right. her face. And I remember that one one night you you went to go lay down. You said just just wake me up in like three hours. I said okay, I will. And I didn't wake you up in three hours. I let you sleep the whole night and you I got up and you, you were so pissed at me. <laughs> That's true. Up. But I thought, That's oh, true. Okay, I'm going to take that hit because, you know, yeah. you, you did a lot of all nighters. That was my first one, you know, so yeah. I could handle yeah. it. But, and then I was able to get a room at the hospital. I mean, they were so yes. compassionate and they, yes. you know, they gave me a room at the hospital and I did, did. You know, get to sleep there. And it was, yeah, the room, great. it was like only a bed. And then, you know, they yeah. were great. They, they actually did offer me the Ronald McDonald house, but what happened yeah, I was, yeah, I learned that if you had the Ronald McDonald house, you had to leave at like say six or something like that. And you had to stay there. So when they offered me the Ronald McDonald house, I was like, oh good. I can use it as a guest home <laughs> for when people visit me. But you couldn't do that. You had to stay there. And I couldn't leave the room with Clara. She just was, you, you know, there were so many reasons that somebody like my husband or me or you or my aunt Flora or my mom, somebody always had to be with her. Um, I had to monitor every kind of 
drug schedule because if they were off even 15 minutes, everything was out of whack. And I just believed that as much as we could make perfect, um, I don't know, it, it felt like that was going mm-hmm. to help her to live, you know, any, anything bad that she felt was going to. And, you know, I got to say, it's still that trauma still lives with me because I probably have always been like, oh, Clara's crying. She can't cry. Right. <laughs> Even when she was 13, you know, that's mm-hmm. a hard habit to break. It's ingrained, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, but the thing about this whole experience, and there are so many um, levels to this and incidents that we're teaching is that when I came home and had a minute and I didn't have a minute for years, honestly. Right. Not much of a minute. Right. No, I, I did think, what did I learn from that? Yeah. You wanted to write it down. Remember you wanted to start writing about it and writing it down and, and And I did, you go through. Yeah. Cause I've done that Mm -hmm. too. When you go through a big giant trauma, best thing you can do is start to write it down. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you can't write it down right away because I couldn't. Exactly. I had to go back a couple years later yes. and then start writing about it because it was just every time I tried to revisit it, it was just too soon, I guess. It was it's too, too hard. Painful. Yeah. It's too painful. In the very beginning, I couldn't do it um, because of that. It was just too present. You know, mm-hmm. when I really started to be able to is when I started to feel safer because although we were told her airway could not grow, that it was physically impossible. Um, although I will just add a caveat that the heart surgeon said, Hey, we do not do an autopsy on everybody. We don't know the size of everybody's airway. You don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was yeah. really great of him to yeah, say. Yeah, He was really hopeful all the time. Yes, he always yes. had something hopeful. Yes. yes. But, great. um, but anyway, once I started to know it had grown, you know, it, um, I felt safer. And once I felt safer, I started to write. And then I kind of wrote like 10 lessons, you know, that I took away. Um, and P.S., the other thing that you and I have talked about is, although it was horrifying and painful and we were sad and we were scared, it was also, you are living very much in the present and every emotion is raw. So there were moments of great joy and laughter. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, that's a good point because when you're going through something really, really rough, you have to surround yourself with those people that can still make you laugh. Cause you yeah. know, like I see it at like funerals I'll go to for, you know, answer my uncles and my cousins are there that I haven't seen in a long time. And we'll often say, it's so weird that we're, we're also happy to see each other and we're laughing and it seems wrong to be laughing in that situation, but there is laughter there, you know, just because of the the joy of kind of being together. But I mean, there were times I think that we just, the laughter is what keeps you alive because I mean, I I still laugh honest to God about that one night that we were driving home from your house really late at night, might've been the night with the Iranian guy. We were heading back to children's hospital and you had your little Bluetooth headphones in, you were driving. And I guess you were on a call to, with Victor, you were talking to Victor, but I didn't know you were talking to Victor. <laughs> so you were saying things like, 
um, well, what time do you think we'll be there? And I was answering, go, well, I think it's going to be about another hour before we get there. And then you said something else. And I answered again. And this went on for minutes. And then finally, you turned and looked at me and went, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I blew too thin. Like, oh, my God, I'm answering all these questions and having a conversation. Yeah, that is so funny. I forgot about that, but I remember it. I mean, we laughed until we cried. It wasn't that funny, honestly. But we were just needing that release, I think, yes. you know, and then we just, just couldn't stop laughing about that yes. ridiculous moment. So, so yeah. yeah, you do have to bring those people in that, you know, can, can take you, that you can laugh hard with yes. when yes. things are rough. Yeah. And I think that um, there was something about that, that experience too. I, I probably, I was, I think I was always an authentic person to, you know, a certain extent, I really do. But there's something about that experience too, that you really do throw away artifice. You know, you, you throw away the need to appear a certain way to people. There was something about everybody thinking I was crazy and stupid. (laughs) You didn't even care. You didn't even care. Right. You did not. No, I thought, you know what? It's really not about me. I have to keep this girl. I have, I Mm -hmm. don't know what, I will do if I lose my child and I am going to do whatever I can do to keep her alive and to keep my other one, you know, with me and having joy. I mean, I would take Gracie and go, let's explore, you know, and Victor would sit with Clara and we would go into, you know, the diabetes area and, you know, it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think that that made me throw away that need to a certain degree of hoping that people think I'm something. Yeah. You know? Well, when you're dealing with such big stuff, it re- you really drill down. Yeah. So you just you're, you just can't handle the, the silly stuff anymore. It just not no. it's too much. It's no. too much. So it no. all goes to the wayside. It's yeah. It's a good lesson, but sadly, it's a hard way to learn it <laughs> but I think that's the only is. way to learn it. it I always get hit with that lesson I swear I'm like I get it universe you can you can I stop know. putting me in this situation right exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I do always get hit with that lesson so I, I think that that along with many other things but that was really a huge one it left me with a desire to share a message mm-hmm. and I think when I was home during the pandemic, I thought, okay, I'll do a magazine. But then I thought, then I have to get advertisers. And, <laughs> right. <you> know. <laughs> so I went on YouTube and I learned how to make a website and I just started writing stuff. I had no idea of what the website was going to be. And Julie, my youngest daughter was my little advisor. She and is, she's great. Yes. <laughs> and she would and, and that's how soulful living, because my name is Solar, and I always thought, oh, what a great last name. And soulful living came into being as, okay, I'm not, it's my book magazine. It's really my way of saying, hey, what's your story? We right. all have these stories. Yes, Amanda. That's why you're here. I mean, that when you say, what, why are we doing this podcast? What's the reason yeah. for it? What's its purpose? It, it is that. It's just to hear people's stories. And yeah. We all have tons of them yeah. on certain topics, you know, yeah. this was yeah, just, get, 
Yeah. This was your story about the, you know, the illness of your daughter. Yes. And, and that story just leads to so many important things for people to hear, you know? So the stories, I mean, I don't think ever I can listen to one of your podcasts and think I, I pull something from it. You know, somebody teaches me something or I go, oh yeah, that's a cool or funny thing or, or that I've never heard of that's new or different. And that's just it. We're learning from each other. So that's kind of the story of how it all began, how Soulful Connections was born. Roseanne and I went on to talk about friendship. How do you assemble the right tribe to live your fullest, richest life? Please join us next week when we talk about that. Hey, thanks for listening. And thanks to show advisor, Roseanne Griffiths, to the talented Bill Aronson, who wrote, produced, and performed the Soulful Connections theme song. Thank you to my friends and family who give me super feedback each show. And I would love to hear feedback and thoughts from you. You can do that by sending an email to soulfullife at gmail.com. That's S like solar, O-L-F-U-L, L-I-F-E at gmail.com. Thanks for connecting.